I joke now that there's not a day that goes by where I'm simultaneously called an evil capitalist and a stupid artist in the same breath. And I'm like, <laughs> you pick one. I can't be both. You can pick one. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Now, if you've listened to a few of our episodes, you'll have learned that artists' relationship to capitalism is, well, uneasy at best, understandably. You know, should we really allow the market to dictate whose artistic output is valuable? Can and should art be treated like widgets or like a new app? Well, to the latter question, my guests in this episode might answer, if the artist is up for it, why not? My guests are Francis Pollock and Keith Hamilton Cobb. Francis, an opera and musical theater composer, is the CEO of a new company called Midnight Oil Collective. You'll hear it referred to as MOC in the episode. MOC basically cribs from the funding practices of tech accelerators, which after all are hubs of creativity, to connect creators with money not from the traditional nonprofit sources, but from private investors. MOC also trains its artist partners to regard their creative work as intellectual property, akin to the tech innovations of an inventor. As for Keith, he is an actor and playwright with a lengthy and distinguished television, film, and stage resume. Keith is not only on MOC's artistic board, he is also in the first artist cohort to fund and develop a new piece through the company. He is the creator of the Untitled Othello Project, a hybrid theater-making and education innovation endeavor that brings together creative minds of diverse backgrounds and disciplines to examine and interrogate the Shakespeare play. Now, I had learned that the first meeting of what would become MOC had taken place just three months after the pandemic lockdown. So I asked Francis and Keith to talk about what led up to that meeting and just what happened there. Wow. Yeah. I actually have to be the one that answers this because Keith came and joined us. What was it, Keith? Like six weeks or two months in? That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So that first meeting, you know, it was really funny because I was a Yale master student at that time. Actually, that's not true. No, I was a doctoral student, uh, but early, early in my uh, doctorate. And I was taking a class with Janine Tesori on musical theater writing. And when the classes at Yale shut down and everything transferred online, you know, Janine kind of made the rest of the semester about, you know, just talking about all of the things that we could control and couldn't control. And what does this mean for theater? And, you know, is there going to be a musical theater, a field of musical theater writing after this, this class that we were all a part of? I just remember having a conversation with her in office hours and I believe that we had started talking about some of my fascinations with the field and with inequities that already existed in the field that were obviously going to be exacerbated by the pandemic. And I was talking about like, you know, who organically can participate in the field and just like that my heart wanted for there to be a way for anyone who had great stories to be able to organic organically um, share those stories on a bigger and bigger stage. 
And basically Janine challenged me and said, like, what are you going to do about it? And so I think for me, that was like, (laughs) that was the starting moment of what could we as artists who are in our position as artists, what could we do about the current situation that was only being expanded by the pandemic, but had been there, you know, for decades. And, you know, once the George Floyd uh, murder happened and the country erupted in riots and all of the arts institutions started putting forth their um, solidarity statements, the thing that just like wouldn't leave my mind was nothing is going to change if you don't address the money. You know, like we can say all these beautiful things, we can put all of these platitudes out there that we stand in solidarity with people who have been historically underestimated and undercapitalized. But if you don't address the way that money works in our industry, especially how it works in relationship to artists and their work, then we will never get past who can participate organically and who can't. And so the first conversations around MOC were that it's like, what type of agency do we as artists have? And how can we affect the fields to become a more open, expansive, and authentic place for anyone to participate. Let's talk about money. Since we started talking about money, how do you line up the money? And what kind of funder is interested in supporting this work? We are um, supported through uh, limited limited partnerships. And so that means that we are a for-profit, investor-driven firm which means that when we invest in a project, the goal is to create a financial return. And that financial return doesn't have to happen immediately. It can happen through multiple rounds of funding, just as in like the traditional sort of startup landscape. But ultimately, um, what we're pushing our projects to think about is how do I create a financially profitable and sustainable venture for you know, you the artist for all of your collaborators, and then ultimately from the people who um, helped you get the project launched in the first place, and those would be your investors. I should add that if you look at the the portfolio, there's a great many products that would be more easily recognizable than Untitled Othello. You know, we have films and, and, and TV shows and plays that any investor would look at and recognize as, oh, this is what what's been selling. This is something that that, that could work. Hopefully they evolve into break out beautiful, innovative things unto themselves. But we had another vertical called Disruptive Ventures. And this is something like Untitled Othello, which is saying, yeah, we're theater makers. Uh, We are artists and creatives. But our chief interest is changing the landscape. And that has to be supported, too. Right. It's the old, it's the disruption that tech people love to talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, a tech firm, of course, at some point does have to deliver a product that will give a huge return on the initial investment. So how do you let Mm -hmm. your funders know that they have to invest in a certain amount of process and that the process of art making is very different from the process, or maybe I'm wrong, process of creating code. How do you educate them to the artistic process and manage their expectations? We're still seeing how closely um, the tech landscape and the creative landscape can exist together. But the reality is, is that, you know, Keith's project entitled was invested in less than 18 months ago. And at this point, Keith has done so much work and so much development in, you know, getting the pre-revenue work done that he's actually ready to go to investors and say, I'm ready to think about what a post-revenue um, round of investment is going to look like. And when you look at the life cycle of startups, 
that is very congruent with, um, you know, what types of progress tech investors want to see. I think the process of creation is the process of creation. And what Keith and I, along with other sort of front running um, projects that are the most mature right now are going to start doing are thinking about what does it look like to exist in a post revenue landscape? You know, what for Keith, you know, like, is there the production that was always like an option that we want to pursue? Or is it actually more of an educational packaging that we're now going to put together and start selling to universities? Ironically, Keith, uh, even in his uh, pre-revenue <laughs> uh, stage, it has been the first project that we've had that has created a profit <laughs> because he's just been really smart with how he's built um, and raised funding and he's already garnered so much university attention that even though there, you know, there was this um, initial aversion to product, the process that he's going through has already generated um, a small profit. Keith, what would have happened? How would your entitled project? What? How much more of a challenge would it have been to develop and fund without MOC's involvement? Huge, because MOC's initial what we call a spark investment was uh, is it all right to quote numbers here oh my, i'd say yes right but for us is yes okay <laughs> yeah, yeah so let's yes. do it <laughs> so yeah their initial investment of thirty thousand wow. dollars allowed us to begin this process we were this process began as again simply an interrogation of othello and i needed to bring together a group of core actors the core ensemble of that play or those who I thought might might be the core ensemble and who might rise to this particular sort of work and bring them together in a room and read the play, discuss it, then shuffle the cast and put them in different roles and read it again and discuss it. And we did that for seven weeks until we created an ensemble that we thought, okay, we get each other after this seven weeks. We we understand each other. We kind of have had some talk about this. Can we really begin to buckle down and build a brain trust here? And that was money that allowed us to do that and take us to the next step. I was at the same time out talking to universities saying, I have this new idea. Is I don't know if, you know, I, I, I want your buy-in. I just want you to try this. And of course, universities are corporations. They wring their hands and they look at this because it is not a recognizable model. And as I said, Sacred Heart, I pitched for three minutes and they were like, where do we sign? We love this, and they've, and they've been our foundational partners for almost three years now, allowing us to create this work. It's not enough. We don't have the amount of money that we need, and we're perpetually looking for it. They are looking for it. MOC is looking for it. I'm looking for it. So it at least allows us to, to spread out the work. It's not me alone doing this, because if it were, being that I have very limited business acumen, we wouldn't have gotten here. In addition to that, there's belief. There's MOC belief. There's belief of my colleagues at MOC, right, who look at this and say, hell yes. There's belief, and again, purely by luck of people at Sacred Heart, you know, across several several departments saying, this is what we want to do. We believe you. Come, do this. So there's some kismet, no doubt about it. But without the buy-in of them, without them having said originally when I described it, yeah, we'd like to work on that too. Let's go. Let's say there's an artist who wants to work with you. How would she proceed? What are the steps? So we do an application process. And this is to assess whether or not the creator is serious about wanting to try an alternative way of funding their work. 
we ask that creators have um, full drafts of their work and like every creator does, right? Like they always have like, you know, screenplays that have been sitting on hard drives or, you know, musicals that have been sitting in their desk drawer for, you know, years and years. And we say like, you know, what is your big ambition? What is the thing that you want to stay up and burn the midnight oil over? You know, what is the thing that if it got its shot would change culture and change the world? That's what we are interested in. And it's so funny. We work with all of these incredible artists who have that piece. And for so, for whatever reason, they've been told it's unproducible. <laughs> um, it's too big. It's too loud. It's too dangerous. It's too noisy. It's too cumbersome. You know, it's, you know, too feminist or, you know, progressive, what, whatever, right? Those are exactly the pieces that we are looking to support. And so an artist will come to us and apply and we say, like, are you serious about being an entrepreneur? Because if you're not, then like, you know, you're going to have a tough time in our system. Clearly, you have you have to make an, uh, an aesthetic or slash artistic potential judgment about the project itself, whether it mm-hmm. serves your artistic goals and cultural goals. Mm-hmm. But then how do you ascertain whether the artist really does want to be an entrepreneur? We do a series of interviews. Um, and I'm going to be honest, like it's still an iterative po- process because the idea of the artist entrepreneur is something that's a little bit of anathema to, um, I would say, the mainstream. See, I mean, it's, it isn't. It isn't. I mean, I would say that the best business person right now in the country is Taylor Swift. <laughs> so like she is the, you know, premium example of the artist entrepreneur. But in terms of the artist who has been educated in, you know, the academy, we get a lot of questions of like, what does that mean? And so what we do is once an artist is accepted into our pipeline, before they receive any kind of funding from us, they receive four months of incubator education. Yeah. And that incubator education is to start to very intentionally peel apart places of bias, like try and give the artist some very foundational tools of thinking about how they're going to scale their artistic assets we educate them about how we're going to form a uh, legal structure around their IP, how they're going to both own and manage um, the structure, what it means for MOC to do their our initial equity investment into that structure. Does MOC have any ownership of the project? The project is assigned to an LLC and then it... MOC becomes a member on that LLC. I see. And so we don't manage the project in any way. We have no artistic say over the project, but we are a minority owner in the um, entity. Keith, did you go through the incubator, an early version of it? Yes. What did you take away from it? What was particularly useful about it? You know, it's an interesting question. If you had asked me right after the incubator, <laughs> I would have said nothing. This doesn't <laughs> this 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 doesn't jive with how I think. But then getting into iterating around this project and building it, I began to see where it all made sense. Because MOC and Project Entitled started pretty much at the same time, we are growing in the same ways. Right. You're in the I same took, learning curve. That's right. I took a great deal from what I saw my colleagues in, in the administration of, of that organization doing, and I, I, I apply it to this. So I have an ongoing sort of practicum going that some of our other artists don't have, you know, it would be interesting to ask them what they're taking away, because I don't really know, I haven't really assessed that. I'm learning as I go and and realizing in retrospect, oh, that's what this was about. That's what this moment in the incubator was about. And I think that Keith points to um, something that's really uh, a crucial part of this process, which is that MOC is not a collective of artists in a traditional sense. It's a collective of businesses being built together. 
And so in the same way that the tech space has built up networks of, you know, cohort, they've built cohorts of businesses through incubators and accelerators that are able to lend support and solidarity and, you know, resources. MOC is doing the same thing where every single person is on their own journey, but they are all building uh, their businesses uh, together at the same time. And then, so the first round of funding is 30,000. You called it the Spark? Mm-hmm. There's Spark funding to start with and are set moments, are there additional methods of future funding? Yeah, of course. I mean, our job as MOC, I would say as MOC facilitators, or like my job as the person who's kind of managing the investment side of things is to help the artists understand all of their different options in seeking further funding. And so again, we've just now gotten to the place where projects are even remotely ready to start thinking in that direction. But what that's going to look like is asking the artists, you know, are you looking to build syndicates uh, of investors to invest in your work? Like this is where all of the the part of the process that I love, the business, legal and finance kind of all coalesce. Um, And where did you learn all that? Yeah, I mean, you started this when you were getting your doctorate in in music. Right, composition. So where did all this education happen? They're prodigies. I'm with you, Pierre. I I, I, I watch these people, you know, take on three incubators, you know, and accelerate three accelerators. I know there's a relationship between composition and math. So maybe that's part of it. I, you know, I think, so we have a lot of support and there's a lot of people at, especially at Yale, who we can go to and say, you know, we're trying things this way. I think it maps onto the tech space in this way. What do you think? You know, I've done a lot of reading. We have a lot of great advisors, a lot of great mentors. Yeah, I mean, but like what it boils down to is, yeah, basically we taught ourselves how to, you know, build out. Well, we taught ourselves what tech does in the uh, investor space. You know, how are they successfully funding innovation? And then we said, there's all of these parallels over here in the creative space. Why don't we just try and structure and apply them to developing creative intellectual property? Because at the end of the day, it's all IP, right? Whether you're you know, going to like create something and form a patent around it, or whether or not you're going to take some, something that has a copyright that you can form an entity around, it's all intellectual property. And so it's just been doing all of that translation for the last four years of like, this is how this ex- exists in the tech space. Like, like, what if we could create a similar structure in the creative space? Are you also teaching artists how to pay themselves? Yes, very much so. I mean, you know, as that's something that is not I, I know so many artists take, you know, their funding and put it all in the program and don't build a salary in for themselves. It's so real. Uh, what we try and teach all of our artists is that they're running a business and like, this is something that we are still trying to empower and build a culture around because it's going to take a while before artists fully realize that when they have an LLC, that is a business and that business can be as big as any other business <laughs> that you see anywhere in the world. Um, and you can do anything with that business. But what we're seeing right now is artists who continuously want to treat they want to treat everything like it exists in the nonprofit space or has historically fit in the nonprofit space, or they want to take their intellectual property and they want to hand it to a producer or license it, you know, away. The natural impulse for an artist is to get rid of control as quickly as possible. And so it's almost like a lot of therapy that we have to go through, which is like, 
we'll sit with you. We'll show you how other businesses are built. You know, we'll build it with you. We can find investors with you, but you need to be able to like sit with it and understand that like you're the manager of this LLC. You know, you're making the decisions. It all comes down to you. It's not, it's not up to us. Uh, the power is in your hand. And I think that um, just because of the way that artists have been, you know, trained to think about their work, it's a really tricky frame to recontextualize. Keith, how do you like thinking of your work as a business? Shifting that lens, was that hard for you to do? How is it helping you in your art and your creativity? It remains hard uh, f- for me. I am I am the, the the poster child for what Francis was just describing, uh, and, and I'm constantly slapped in the face with, "Oh yeah, I've got to handle this. I have to administer this. I have to, you know, abide by these laws and these and these rules." It's uh, I'm evolving. You know, it's it, 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 it's a learning curve. If left to my devices, I'd want to sit in a room and just do the creative work. You know, that's all I really wanted to do. So I'm applying the tools as best I can. And I screw up. Every Everything outside the box pier comes up against, against roadblocks. Something as simple as dealing with my accountants. I explain to them what this is. Say, I just started a company. I need you to help me with this. They talk to me like I'm an idiot. Because this is not something they want to spend their time with. What's inside the box, that's what they went to school to do. Understand that they do not want to put their heads around a new model or doing any of it differently. So they see me coming and they're annoyed. Uh, Compare that to the lawyers at the Yale Law School that MOC has gotten involved with who looked at this and say, I see exactly what you're trying to do and I'm here to help you. Francis, how are you enjoying being a CEO? Are you still able to attend to your art? You know, one of the most interesting parts of this job right now is the creative economy very broadly, especially in the storytelling um, space, is at an inflection point. And we've seen this with the strikes in Hollywood, which still continue to this day, um, which has kept Hollywood at an absolute standstill and also the struggles of the nonprofit theater sector, as most major theater companies um, across the country are reckoning with, you know, shifting donor patterns and audiences not coming back after the pandemic and just not being able to keep up with their operationally, like their bottom line. And at the same time, institutions divesting from arts and humanities. What we're seeing is an opportunity to completely just reimagine the way that all of this is done. I think in a time when so many people have so much fear, especially professional artists and professional arts makers and cultural architects have so much fear because the old way is failing. I have so much hope because I, I feel like we're at a place where we can't ignore these problems any longer. And it's just a matter of time before everyone is demanding a, a new way of doing this. What kind of pushback, if any, have you guys heard from other artists and other money people? Well, I joke now that there's not a day that goes by where I'm simultaneously called an evil capitalist and a stupid artist in the same breath. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) you pick one. I can't be both. You can pick one. (laughs) If I'm both an evil capitalist and a stupid artist, I think that you're missing something. Mm. 
you know, it's just overcoming the biases that artists have against business and finance and legal structures. And it's overcoming the bias that, you know, legal types, business types and finance types have against, you know, artists. So we get pushback all of the time against this notion that it can be done differently. But it doesn't stop the fact that what is the statistic that 82% of SAG actors can't afford the health insurance offered by the union, you know, and it doesn't change the fact that arts graduates are coming out with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of student loan debt and immediately leaving the field. So like, I just have kind of embraced that duality of the evil art of the even not the evil artist, the evil capitalist that or the should stupid be, artist. Please, you have to have a business card, <laughs> a joke business card that has both titles on it. <laughs> That would be genius. (laughs) So when might uh, an arts lover, an audience member, viewer experience kind of the first project funded through MOC? We're already um, starting to put out uh, the proof of concepts that that our artists have made in um, a variety of public settings. So I would say on a small scale, you can already... Um, start to see some of the fruits of all of our labor. This I have to admit, I don't think I understand what that means, putting out a proof of concept on a small scale for an arts project. <laughs> well, yeah, it, uh, it, again, it's more of this translation right. uh, game for us. Yeah. So in the tech space, see, this is it all comes back to like, what is working? What are the funding models that work? In the tech space, the industry standard recognizes that creating MVPs, a minimum viable product, Um, is a great way of attracting funding partners and strategic partners and selling early, you know, early models or attracting early users to your venture. And so we encourage our artists to think similarly, like, what are you going to create that's going to attract those early funders, like, allow people to understand the full scope of your project. And really, that's what we encourage those early checks to be used towards. You know, like, how do you show traction? How do you build your network of supporters for your project? So it's kind of the beta model. Yes, exactly. We have, you know, last year at the Yale Innovation Summit, we were able to put on a, you know, a full workshop of uh, Anthony Davis's uh, musical Shimmer in partnership with uh, Schwarzman Center. So there was 100 people that saw that. They got a beautiful recording that they're now sending out across the country. Keith has invited events all the time with Project Entitled, um, in which he allows people to see into the process of creating um, one of these, one of uh, interrogating um, uh, some of the work that he's doing. And this coming spring, we have one of our shows, um, Stargazers, going off Broadway. So that's going to be a traditional run in production with Page Seventy Three Productions. You know, those are instances where artists or where audiences get to see the first glimpses of these, you know, the early investments. And it's really, really exciting for us. That's it's very really exciting. exciting. All in, yeah. All in three years. Oh, it's not all in three years. It's all in 18 months. 18 months. That's right. That's astonishing. Yeah. We opened our fund last June and these are all wow. investments that we have made. If you'd like to learn more about Midnight Oil Collective and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Please be sure to click the subscribe and notification buttons. We've got great interviews in our pipeline and you don't want to miss them. 
Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.